Hello, Kindred Spirits. Thank you all so much for joining us today on Kindred Spirits Book Club, the podcast where two grown-ass ladies geek out about Anne of Green Gables. I'm Kelly Gurner, and I'm joined by my co-host, Reagan Duffy. Hello, Kindred Spirits. Kelly, how are you? How are you enjoying spring these days? Spring is happening for sure. I have been doing some of that like wardrobe transition that we always do at this time of year. Now, those of you who are familiar listeners to the podcast will know that Reagan and I live in Southern California. So our seasonal transitions tend to not be huge, but I actually think that makes it harder. It's not like, oh, I'm putting away my heavy sweaters and snow pants or whatever people who live in cold places (laughs) wear. It's like, I'm trying to figure out which are my slightly warmer or heavier weight pants versus what are my like lightweight sort of summery pants. And then of course, we're also getting so much of that transitional weather where it'll be 80 degrees in the middle of the day, but you know, in the forties and fifties in the morning and at night. So figuring that out, but loving it, loving to see the sunshine. Yes. Good. I know me too. I could tell it was starting to feel like actually spring because I made the transition this week from hot coffee in the morning to iced coffee in the morning. Oh, that is the marker. Yeah. That is a big marker, right? I made a big old batch of cold brew and I jumped the gun a little bit. I made some last week and I had to retreat for a few days back to hot (laughs) coffee. But this week seems like it's sort of stuck where, nope, nope, this is what I want to drink in the morning. It's not chilling me. It's making me feel like prepared for the day instead of making me feel like I'm freezing. So that for me is usually the marker that we are moving into a new season. I had iced coffee for the first time this morning too. And I think I had some of that same sense of, okay, we're warming up. But I will say that I will drink hot coffee even on a hot day. Those two things are not like mutually exclusive in my mind. I also turn my seat warmers on on warm days. I like like being warm. (laughs) I'm a, my husband says I'm like a lizard. So (laughs) no, no, no. For me, I'm definitely, I really specifically change what I'm craving to drink Mm. where I go from hot tea, hot chocolate, hot coffee to iced tea, iced coffee, boba drinks, which my daughter is obsessed with. So we've been drinking those lately. And then when it gets really, really hot, then I want like frozen drinks, like frappuccinos Mm -hmm. or smoothies, or some of the times we've had really, really awful heat waves. I will freeze popsicles made out of smoothies or iced coffee and have those in the morning. Wow. Okay. That's Mm -hmm. commitment, Reagan. Yeah. Yeah. That's when it really, really gets awful. It doesn't Mm -hmm. get that awful a lot of the time, but some of those, there are sometimes there's some of those weeks where it just feels like too hot to think. Right. Yeah. And then everything's frozen. Yeah. I think we do have maybe three or so weeks of those a year. So kindred spirits, Today, we are going to begin our themed-based discussion of Anne of Avonlea. In our last season, we explored Anne of Green Gables through character studies of the major and some minor characters of the book. This season, we thought we'd do our deep dives through the lens of theme rather than character. Very, very early in Anne of Green Gables, as Matthew was driving Anne home, She asks him a question that is kind of the underlying thesis statement of the Anne books. Anne asks Matthew, would you rather be divinely beautiful, dazzlingly clever, or angelically good? 
At the time, Anne declares she can't ever choose, but she despairs of ever being angelically good and never dreams to become divinely beautiful. But we see over the course of Anne of Green Gables how Anne is well on her way to achieving all of those ambitions. And what we notice is that this theme continues to run through Anne's life over the next several books. It looks different for Anne as she grows up, but we still see these same three essential aspects of Anne's growth. In Anne of Avonlea, the theme of goodness is explored through the idea of community, what it means to be a member of a community, and how being good is how we treat the others in our lives. So that theme of community is what we're going to explore today. Anne of Avonlea is a book that stays grounded in Anne's point of view, but expands her worldview to encompass the people and places in and around Avonlea. On our reread for the podcast, we were really struck by how part of Anne's growth into her young adulthood is centered on her taking her place in the community. Reagan, I don't know about you, but as I get older, I'm thinking about community differently than I used to. I think for a long time, I believe that community was something that did something for you, right? Like you chose a neighborhood based on amenities or access to the places and things and people that you valued. But now as I'm getting older, I think I'm kind of evolving and realizing that community is something that you have to participate in. And I'm curious, what is community meaning for you these days? So that's an interesting question. And I actually have kind of two separate experiences of community. In one way, I've always thought of community as this big overarching idea that we all have a responsibility to each other. And that is the core of why I became a social worker. This idea that we have a responsibility to our larger community and we have a responsibility to make sure that everyone has access to equitable supports. And I worked in community mental health for many, many years. I loved getting to be a part of a community as a provider and as a professional offering help. And I learned a lot about the many beautiful ways that communities can function. I definitely benefited from those experiences, but I didn't really see myself as someone who needed to receive from my community until I had a kid. That's a big change. All of a sudden, I needed to receive from my community. Child care, schools, and other supports all of a sudden became a real and present need for me and my family. And it's a slow growing process to become an active member of the community, not a professional from the outside coming in. It's taken time. It's taken the risk of rejection. It's taken initiative and investment to build a community around our family. That means other parents that can do a last minute pickup or drop off or a school community that lends snow boots for a spur-of-the-moment winter trip, other kids that are learning and growing that introduce my child to new ideas and experiences, and a new appreciation for community professionals like the teachers and child care workers that help my kid become who she is. So I'm trying to be a very active member of the community, both offering that kind of community to others and actively receiving it. I volunteer in the school library. I say yes as often as possible to my kids' friends. I reach out to form friendships with other parents, and I'm really grateful for the community we've built here. During the pandemic, we leaned into our neighborhood in a new way that really paid off with closer relationships with our neighbors, and we definitely would have struggled to manage my daughter's increasing involvement in musical theater or Girl Scouts without other parents and carpools. It's a lot of work to be connected, but I'm finding it really rewarding as well. 
Your perspective is so interesting to me, Reagan, you know, talking about how you didn't really feel like community was something you needed until you had a kid. And then interestingly enough, it's sort of like, because you had a kid, all of a sudden, all the sort of community supports that you needed, you know, you had to go out and find them, create them, invest in them, but they were there, they existed. I think that sometimes without sort of the entry point of having a kid, it can be a little bit, I don't think harder is the right word, but it might seem not as obvious where your community supports are. I think yes. they're there, but because someone who doesn't have kids or, you know, may have all of their needs sort of met in their own household, they might not know where to look to find community supports. They might not know that they need community supports. They might not realize the benefit of investing deeply into a community. And so that is something that I've been thinking about a lot lately. We've lived in our house for over a decade now, which is shocking to think about, quite frankly. <laughs> <laughs> I remember when we bought it thinking it was going to be our starter home and here we are. <laughs> oh, I love your house. I love Oh, your house. I love our house too and I'm so happy we're here. But it is it is funny the sort of the twists and turns that life takes. Even though we've been here for a long time, it's only been within the past couple of years. And again, I think that's very much in part to the lockdown that we started to make friends with our neighbors on our street, other than just like our immediate next door neighbors, mm -hmm. um, which is kind of interesting. And now, you know, we have more connections and we have like more of a phone tree and things like that, which is great. But the other thing that I really am starting to like see the loss of is third spaces. And this is something that's kind of come across my, my screens or my attention lately. You know, people are writing sort of think pieces about this, but this idea is that, you know, we have home and we have work, but we don't really have like another space where people can go and gather where they don't have to like buy something or <laughs> they don't have to have like permission to be there. Like it's just a space where people can be, right? So whether mm -hmm. that is the assembly hall in Avonlea or, <laughs> you know, for a lot of people, it's church. Mm -hmm. And then for a lot of people, it's like the library. But other than places like that, there just are not that many third spaces anymore. You know, even going to a coffee shop to hang out is going to require that you spend like 10 bucks on right. coffee and scone. And it's just an interesting thing that there aren't these places, there aren't as many places anymore where you can just sort of strike up a conversation with a stranger, reach out and meet your neighbors, have these sorts of sparks of creativity or like points of contact or interest with someone else and make new friends or get involved in a new group. So those places are out there, but oftentimes they're just elusive, I think, is what I'm yeah. finding. Well, and I think it leads back a little bit to your point that for people with children, there's sort of a built-in space around mm -hmm. that. There's more opportunities for entry. Yeah. That's and con right and connection. It doesn't mean that they're not there for other people, but I think you're right. You have to specifically seek them out and want to participate. Whereas if you have a kid, eventually kind of community is coming for you right. for the most part, right? <laughs> like your kid is going to make friends or they're going to join the scouts or they're going to want to play soccer. And like it or not, you're probably going to have to chat up other parents at yep on the sidelines of the soccer game or whatever that's going to be. So you can't really stay completely isolated. I know that there's parents for whom that that's not a great thing. Like, <laughs> like to have community thrust upon you. Thrust upon you. <laughs> well, and there certainly is something to, you know, when you're out in the world with a baby, you're much more public property in a way that is both 
kind oh, of cool. So true. And very weird, right? Like my husband oh, always used so to joke. True. All yeah. of a sudden people are commenting on is it a girl or a boy or wanting to know about the outfit or what the baby's name is and all these things. You're like, I don't know you. Yeah. <laughs> my husband always used to joke that when he goes to Home Depot by himself, he can't mm-hmm. find an employee no matter what. So he would take Alice, right, at two yeah. or three, and all of a sudden he had help out the wazoo, right? People I like, remember I her little I remember her little orange Home Depot apron. Yes, I know. She loved those little Home Depot classes, right? But that's a good example of a third space going to the free Home Depot kids class, Mm -hmm. right? And maybe nothing really significant comes from it. Or maybe that's a way that you start connecting with other people. And I think that that's something that our culture, unfortunately, doesn't offer in the same way to folks who don't have kids. I mean, I think the next best thing is to get a dog. Right. Having a dog, meeting people when you're out walking the dog, I will say that's how we know most of our neighbors. Yeah. Is because we're walking the dog every night at 6 p.m. and they see us and they smile and wave and we smile and wave and talk about their flowers that have come up or whatever's going on. And then that's what we do. So the dog really helps. And also just volunteering really helps. I've had different periods of my life where I've engaged more with volunteerism than perhaps I am right now. But that is always a great way to meet people sort of in your neighborhood. Yeah. Well, all of these kind of thoughts are going to lead us right into our conversation today about community in Anne of Avonlea. So let's dive in. Our kindred spirit for this episode is Mr. Harrison. Mr. Harrison plays the role of the Avonlea outsider that Anne was in in the first book. And seeing him integrate into the community is one of the story's most fun arcs. When we are introduced to him, he is a curmudgeonly irascible man who refuses to engage in Avonlea society, causing rumors that he lives in squalor and only washes his dishes on rainy days, both of which turn out to be true. The only thing worse than his bad temper is his parrot Ginger's salty language inspired by Mr. Harrison's brother, the sailor. But as Anne gets to know him, he seems to mellow and she begins to see that he could be a kindred spirit. They make gentle inroads in their friendship, clashing over things like school discipline and donating to the Avonlea Village Improvement Society. But they seem to appreciate that their differences are what make for an interesting friendship. By the end of the book, Mr. Harrison is a full-fledged member of Avonlea Society. His wife has not only returned to him and cleaned house literally and metaphorically, but has also befriended Mrs. Rachel Lind, ensuring the Harrison's social status and acceptance in the village of Avonlea. So you can kind of see that Mr. Harrison is a little bit of one of those people who thinks they want to opt out of community. Right. (laughs) And then it turns out community comes for him. Community totally comes for him. (laughs) Our quote of the episode arises from the fiasco of painting the assembly hall a brilliant blue. After the fledgling AVIS went door to door soliciting funds to have Avonlea's assembly hall repainted, the hall was painted a bizarre shade of bright blue, not the sedate green color the AVIS selected. The luckless improvers expected that Avonlea would be more prejudiced than ever against them, but instead, public sympathy veered around in their favor. People thought the eager, enthusiastic little band who had worked so hard for their object had been badly used. 
Mrs. Lynn told them to keep on and show the pies that there really were people in the world who could do things without making a muddle of them. Mr. Major Spencer sent them word that he would clean out all the stumps along the road in front of his farm and seed it down with grass at his own expense. And Mrs. Hiram Sloan called at the school one day and beckoned Anne mysteriously out to the porch to tell her that if the society wanted to make a geranium bed at the crossroads in the spring, they needn't be afraid of her or her cow, for she would see that the marauding animal was kept within safe bounds. Even Mr. Harrison chuckled, if he chuckled at all, in private, and was all sympathy outwardly. This quote, which gives a village-wide perspective on the Hall debacle, tells us a lot about life in Avonlea. We learn that generally, the citizenry are proud of having a beautiful town, and inclined to support village improvement and the earnest young people who have taken up that campaign. They know their neighbors well, and they know that certain families, like the Pies, can't be trusted. They will also band together for a common cause. Our story club today is going to look at the theme of community in Anne of Avonlea. And while we were mulling over the standout themes of the next few books in the Anne series, Anne of Avonlea, Anne of the Island, and Anne of Windy Poplars, we realized that community, community building, and making a place in a community is a strong through line in each of those stories and also tells us a lot about Anne's journey into adulthood. Today, we are just focusing on Anne of Avonlea, but know that this is a topic we will revisit in later episodes as well. Anne of Avonlea sees several newcomers to the Avonlea community. Mr. Harrison, as we discussed, and Paul Irving, Anne's beloved pupil, but probably the most memorable new faces are Davy and Dora Keith, the twins Marilla agrees to take in. Here we have Marilla's sense of community and duty on full display. I'm reminded of Matthew's quote from Anne of Green Gables when he and Marilla were deciding whether to keep Anne. Matthew wisely said, maybe we can be of some good to her. Marilla seems to have retained this philosophy and, with some persuasion from Anne, agrees to give the Keith children a home until their uncle, doing business out west, sends for them. I love thinking about this as an extension of Marilla's character growth. In our Marilla episode in season one, we talked at length about how Marilla made the journey from a standoffish, childless spinster to a loving mother figure to Anne. We suggested that Marilla was able to do that in part due to her strong Christian values, which told her that saving wayward souls like Anne's was part of her duty as a woman of faith. That, in turn, laid the foundation for her to admit Anne into her life, and as their relationship progressed, she grew to genuinely love Anne and embrace her role as Anne's parent. When the opportunity to raise Davy and Dora comes along, Anne is immediately ready to say yes. But of course, she's thinking of her own childhood neglect and wanting a better life for these children. Marilla, ever practical, is moving more cautiously considering her age and her health issues. The book explains that Anne, quote, knew that Marilla's only vulnerable point was her stern devotion to what she believed to be her duty, and Anne skillfully marshaled her arguments along this line. If Davy is naughty, it's all the more reason why he should have good training, isn't it, Marilla? If we don't take him, we don't know who will, nor what kind of influences may surround them. Suppose Mrs. Keith's next-door neighbors, the Sprots, were to take them. Mrs. Lynn says Harry Sprott is the most profane man that ever lived, and you can't believe a word his children say. Wouldn't it be dreadful to have the twins learn anything like that? Or suppose they went to the Wiggins. Mrs. Lynn said that Mr. Wiggins sells everything off the place that can be sold and brings his family up on skim milk. You wouldn't want to see your relations be starved, even if they were only third cousins, would you? It seems to me, Marilla, that it is our duty to take them. I suppose it is, assented Marilla gloomily. I dare say I'll tell Mary I'll take them. You needn't look so delighted, Anne. It will mean a good deal of extra work for you. I can't sew a stitch on account of my eyes, so you'll have to see to the making and mending of their clothes. And you don't like sewing. I hate it. 
said Anne calmly, that if you are willing to take those children from a sense of duty, surely I can do their sewing from a sense of duty. It does people good to have to do things they don't like. In moderation. In moderation, indeed. <laughs> Playing to Marilla's sense of duty isn't just a canny argument on Anne's part. It's genuinely how Marilla orders her life by considering what she owes to other people and where her duties and responsibilities lie. For Marilla, this is certainly grounded in her faith, but also in the fact that in a rural community far from services and amenities of a city, neighbors have to support each other and provide for each other. Here is the core of what it means to be community-minded, giving yourself to others to strengthen the collective. It makes sense, then, that Anne, raised by someone with such a strong sense of community, would demonstrate a lot of those same qualities. Anne is willing to do one of her least favorite tasks, sewing, from the sense of duty, this altruism towards children she's never met. That already shows how she's grown and matured, but also speaks to that childhood ambition to be angelically good. We see throughout the book that Anne and Marilla's influence on Davy does indeed do him some good, and they gradually begin to help him grow more thoughtful and kinder as the book progresses. Towards the end of the book, after nearly two years with Anne and Marilla, Davy reflects, Anne, I know I'm gooder than I used to be, and I'll tell you how I know it. Today, Marilla gave me two pieces of bread and jam, one for me and one for Dora. One was a good deal bigger than the other, and Marilla didn't say which was mine, but I give the biggest piece to Dora. That was good of me, wasn't it? Anne confirms that it was a good thing to do, and we see that Anne's attention and influence on Davy is a way of passing on that goodness, a way of showing how kindness ripples out, sometimes slowly, but reaching further into a community one person at a time. Anne herself is not content to merely teach the Avonlea School, but she also takes it upon herself to found the Avonlea Village Improvement Society, which they call the AVIS, alongside Gilbert Blythe, her fellow go-getter. The AVIS is a group of young people in Avonlea, those people who are not yet married but no longer children, who agreed to meet once every two weeks to discuss ways to improve the village. Their improvements seem generally focused on issues of beautifying the village, removing unsightly buildings, planting trees, painting fences, that kind of thing. It's not clear whether the AVIS intended to get involved in charitable endeavors at any point, but in this book, the improvements seem to be mostly focused on physical enhancements. And that makes a lot of sense, that beauty-loving Anne would make this the focus of her project. The challenge facing the AVIS is funding and changing public opinion, and getting people on board with wanting to invest time and money into making their properties and the village more appealing. The improvers are often canvassing different parts of Avonlea, giving the readers a great opportunity to get to know the geography of the town and meet more of its residents. I think this passage is a really interesting one because we meet so many people in Avonlea in such a short span of time. Maud explains the reactions of various town folk to the AVIS. There was some disapproval, of course, and, which the improvers felt much more keenly, a good deal of ridicule. Mr. Alicia Wright was reported to have said that a more appropriate name for the organization would be Courting Club. Mrs. Hiram Sloan declared that she heard the improvers meant to plow up all the roadsides and set them out with geraniums. Mr. Levi Bolter warned his neighbors that the improvers would insist that everybody pull down his house and rebuild it after plans were approved by the society. Mr. James Spencer sent them word that he wished they would kindly shovel down the church hill. Eben Wright told Anne he wished the improvers would induce old Josiah Sloan to keep his whiskers trimmed. Mr. Lawrence Bell said he would whitewash his barns if nothing else would please them, but he would not hang lace curtains in his cow stable windows. Mr. Major Spencer asked Clifton Sloan, an improver who drove the milk to the Carbody Cheese Factory, if it was true that everybody would have to have his milk stand hand-painted next summer and keep an embroidered centerpiece on it. 
So that's nine different people and nine different opinions in one paragraph. This is part of the charm of Anne of Avonlea, that the camera pulls out from Green Gables and pans across Avonlea writ large, and suddenly there's so many more people to know. It brings into focus the community as a whole, as opposed to just Green Gables and the near neighbors like the Berries and the Lynns. And we'll see in future books how that continues to sort of pull out and pull out, with Anne of the Island pulling further out in terms of expanding the community, and then Anne of Windy Poplars even further. Right. But that said, Anne and Diana are still our main girls, and they take center stage. It's a lovely day, but we have anything but a lovely task before us, sighed Diana. Why on earth did you offer to canvas this road, Anne? Almost all the cranks in Avonlea live along it, and we'll probably be treated as if we were begging for ourselves. It's the worst road of all. That's why I chose it. Of course, Gilbert and Fred would have taken this road if we asked them. But Mm -hmm. you see, Diana, I feel myself responsible for the AVIS since I was the first to suggest it. And it seems to me that I ought to do the most disagreeable things. I'm sorry on your account, but you needn't say a word at the cranky places. I'll do all the talking. Mrs. Lynde would say I was well able to. Mrs. Lynde doesn't know whether to approve of our enterprise or not. She inclines to when she remembers that Mr. and Mrs. Allen are in favor of it. But the fact that village improvement societies first originated in the States is a count against it. So she is halting between two opinions and only success will justify us in Mrs. Lynn's eyes. The stakes are high. The stakes are high. (laughs) And this is such a lovely example of Anne's altruism and that sense of duty that she agrees to take on an unpleasant task. She's owning this idea of the AVIS, so she feels like she's owning the hard work. Although poor Diana has to come along with her. Mm -hmm. And it's again, this is where we're seeing her making strides towards angelically good. Right. As Anne and Diana canvass the road, the reader is introduced to even more members of the Avonlea community. Once again, Diana is playing the role of the Avonlea insider and giving Anne the background information about the people they'll be visiting including the Andrews girls, two unmarried sisters in their 50s, one of whom was known to be very optimistic and generous, the other to be very pessimistic and stingy. Diana also introduces Daniel Blair, who doesn't dare have his hair cut without asking his wife's permission. And when they stop at Mr. Blair's, they find him home with no wife and trying to make a layer cake without success. Anne and Diana come to the rescue, baking a beautiful cake, thus ensuring a generous donation of $4, which is probably about nearly $120 in today's money. They next met Mrs. Theodore White, the neatest woman alive, who laid down a path of newspapers from the front door to the parlor so Anne and Diana wouldn't track dirt into her house. Anne and Diana encounter a few more cranks, like Isabella Spencer, who said something ill-natured about everyone in Avonlea, Mr. Thomas Bolter, who refused to donate to repainting the hall because it wasn't built on the site he suggested 20 years ago, and Mrs. Esther Bell, who spent half an hour detailing her every ache and pain before donating 50 cents, telling Anne and Diana that she would probably not be able to donate next year since she would be in her grave. At the last house of the afternoon, Anne and Diana were having tea with Mrs. Robert Dixon when Mrs. James White came in with the news that Mrs. Lorenzo White just gave birth to a son, the first after seven daughters. Knowing an opportunity when she saw it, Anne dragged Diana to Lorenzo White's house, where the proud papa donated five whole dollars, about $150 in today's money, while Anne and Diana showered the newborn with praise. 
I love this chapter, Reagan. I think it is truly remarkable. First of all, it's very funny. Like, oh, I'm, I'm giving you 50 cents today because I probably won't be around. <laughs> That's right. I'll be here. I'll be dead next year. <laughs> and of course, the book points out that she's perfectly healthy, right? <laughs> <laughs> this chapter just gives us so much in such a short span of time. We meet tons of new people. We learn about what kind of people they are. And we learn a lot about the landscape of the village and how the neighbors relate to one another, right? We're seeing them coming and going in each other's houses. It's a true slice of Avonlea life dotted with minor emergencies like cake baking and everyday miracles like a new baby. This shows the reader what life is like in this rural community. People know each other pretty well. They rely on each other, but they also have their idiosyncrasies. There's nothing monolithic about the people or opinions in Avonlea, and this chapter connects their lives like a patchwork quilt. We also learn a lot about how Diana and Anne relate to their community and how their savvy relationships with their neighbors allow them to collect funds and begin to change hearts and minds about the AVIS. And we see how this is a stepping stone for Anne and Diana and the other Avonlea young people coming into their own as adult members of the society. We really see Anne and Diana interacting with their community from a more adult perspective and not as children. They have an understanding of all these individuals, their flaws and foibles, and they approach them as equal members of the community invested in the well-being of the whole. The AVIS then weathers the scandal of the Blue Assembly Hall, which mortifies Anne, but succeeds in bringing the Avonlea community together in favor of the Improvement Society and against the arrogant and incompetent pies who bought the wrong color paint and painted the hall with the offensive color. Villagers become more motivated to beautify their lands of their own accord, and the AVIS began to set its sights on larger-scale improvements like planting trees by the church and building a fence around the school grounds. So you can imagine the AVIS's distress when Gertie Pye announces at a meeting that Mr. Judson Parker is going to rent all the road fence of his farm to a patent medicine company to paint advertisements on. It can't be true said Anne blankly. That's just what I said when I heard it first, don't you know? Said Gertie, who was enjoying herself hugely. I said it couldn't be true, that Judson Parker wouldn't have the heart to do it, don't you know? But father met him this afternoon and asked him about it, and he said it was true. Just fancy. His farm is side on to the Newbridge Road, and how perfectly awful it will look to see advertisements of pills and plasters all along it, don't you know? The improvers did know all too well. Even the least imaginative among them could picture the grotesque effect of half a mile of board fence adorned with such advertisements. All thoughts of church and school grounds vanished before this new danger. Parliamentary rules and regulations were forgotten, and Anne, in despair, gave up trying to keep minutes at all. Everyone talked at once, and fearful was the hubbub. Anne, Diana, and Jane immediately went to Judson Parker to try to dissuade him from using his fence to advertise patent medicines, but he would not be dissuaded. And while the community at large expressed disapproval for Judson Parker's scheme, he held firm, wanting to be paid more than he wanted to contribute to a pleasant community aesthetic. Avonlea as a whole resigned themselves to the prospect of seeing a particularly pretty road defaced with commerce. Ugh, they would be quite disappointed in right? where we have landed since then. Oh, I know. This really is like a very quaint perspective. Suddenly, Anne revealed to the AVIS that Judson Parker had a change of heart and would not rent out his fences to advertisers at all. This shocked the AVIS, who were certain there was more behind the turnaround. Anne would not reveal what had transpired to the group as a whole. But Maud tells the reader that Anne had encountered Judson Parker making a shady political deal with a local electioneer. She had 
accidentally overheard Parker apparently promising to vote for a particular candidate in exchange for farm equipment. Shame. I know. And when Jensen Parker noticed Anne walking by, he quickly tried to pretend that this was not what was going on. Nope, you didn't see anything. You didn't hear anything. Nope. In an episode last season, we discussed Prince Edward Island's tradition of a strong voter turnout and direct democracy. So we know this is really a grave sin on Judson Parker's part and directly contravenes one of the community's most venerated values. When Parker realizes that Anne had overheard, he immediately tries to win her over to her good side, offering her a ride home, which she refuses haughtily. And then Parker, much mollified by Anne, pledges not to sell his fences or his vote. Again, we learned so much about Avonlea's cultural mores in this short section. You know what's also interesting is that Parker doesn't specifically say to Anne, I won't sell my fence space if you don't tell anybody. No. And Anne doesn't try and blackmail him around this either. And he the just, book actually very specifically points out that she wouldn't. Like right. It says that she was not going to lower herself to negotiate with a fraudster. Exactly. But Anne's very palpable sense of high ideals, mm-hmm. I think, shames Judson Parker. And yeah. he kind of realizes that he's crossed a line and demonstrates it by no longer renting out his fences. And I think there's maybe a couple of different things going on, right? Like one, Anne is sort of like the country school ma'am. So she comes with that aura of respectability. Mm-hmm. Two, as we're talking about, you know, Anne has really worked very pointedly to be good. And so I think her goodness probably radiates off of her and impacts the people around her. And then three, from the community perspective, this is simply not okay. Yeah. This, this is, is not a community that would tolerate this exactly. kind of fraud. This is not Anne having too high of an ideal. No. Everybody would be extremely upset about this. Mm-hmm. Right. This is this is the kind of thing that would would cause major scandal and uproar. And I think in this section, you have Judson Parker's sort of inner monologue as he's realizing that the, the woman he's courting, that if her father were ever to hear about this, he wouldn't be able to marry her. And so that's also something that comes to his mind. So right. he has a lot of incentive to get on Anne's good side. <laughs> yes, exactly. We learn so much about Avonlea's cultural mores in this short section. The community wants to maintain its harmonious, picturesque charm more than it wants to see individuals individuals like Judson Parker personally enriched with advertising money. And likewise, it is instantly understood that even discussing some kind of voter fraud means complete community exile. Anne makes a really interesting choice here as well, and one that speaks highly of her moral character. She doesn't tell anyone why Judson Parker changed his mind or what she overheard about the offer to buy his vote. She keeps that confidential, knowing that the community punishment would be severe if that was widely known and trusting Parker to walk the high ground. We'll talk a little more about this next episode when discussing Anne's teaching philosophies, but Anne's expectation that others will live up to her high standards for behavior does seem to work. It certainly did in this case. I know, right? We also see how the community comes together in the wake of Uncle Abe's hailstorm. Though the crops are destroyed and many houses and buildings are damaged, the Avonlea folk check on each other and support each other as they make repairs and replant, and the AVIS secretly rejoices that the storm destroyed Levi Bolter's abandoned eyesore of a barn that he had so staunchly refused to tear down. 
Avonlea is a village that puts the collective good over the individual good. We see that in Marilla taking in the twins, in Anne starting the AVIS, in the community's response to the AVIS, and once again, when Marilla invites Mrs. Lind to move into Green Gables rather than leave Avonlea. And this is such a lovely example of community. I know. It really is that idea of an individual in community. Yeah. Marilla understands how much Avonlea means to Mrs. Lynde. She says, it's breaking her heart to think of leaving Avonlea. A woman of her age doesn't make new friends and interests easy. When Anne gently inquires about whether living in close quarters with someone as opinionated as Mrs. (laughs) Lynde would be a good idea, Marilla responds with, she's got her faults, you mean to say? Well, she has, of course, but I think I'd rather put up with far worse faults than see Rachel go away from Avonlea. I'd miss her terrible. She's the only close friend I've got here, and I'd be lost without her. We've been neighbors for 45 years, and we've never had a quarrel, though we came rather near it that time you flew at Mrs. Rachel for calling you homely and red-haired. And Mrs. Rachel is delighted to accept, noting that while Green Gables is farther off the road than she generally likes to live, She'd, quote, rather live at the bottom of a well than leave Avonlea. Oh. And honestly, I rather relate to that statement. You know, sometimes my husband and I talk about whether we'd like to move out of the Los Angeles area, housing prices being rather outrageous here. Right. (laughs) And getting worse. And while there's a part of me that would truly love it, I never imagined Los Angeles as my forever home. The thing that stops me is having to leave the community and the found family we've built here and having to start over. I know. I know. We go back and forth with that same thought, right? On the one hand, it's like, I don't know if living here long term is ever going to be the right decision. But on the other hand, the idea of leaving our friends, family, colleagues, so many of the roots we've planted seems really hard. I I can understand why. Mrs. Lynn does not want to leave Avonlea. Absolutely. And as we've already discussed, the answer to that is to just found our commune. And oh, yeah. So when you're ready to do I'm that, I'm ready. Right? All right. We're, <laughs> we're ready. One of the beautiful things about this exploration of community through Anne of Avonlea is how we have individual examples of community like taking in the twins or asking Mrs. Lynn to move in. And we have larger examples of community in the AVIS and the political intrigue. Right. Anne gets the opportunity to grow in her goodness in the way she becomes an active member of her community. She not only convinces Marilla to take in the twins, but sews for them and does the hard work of gently guiding Davy along a more moral path. And that's leaving a legacy of kindness and love. She takes the lead on founding the AVIS and creating an organization that will carry on without her, even after she leaves Avonlea for college, a legacy of community. She's leaving her mark on the town that embraced her and gave her support and safety. And I think that's such an important part of growing up, realizing that you have something to give back to others, to your community. And it's a big step in becoming an adult and in becoming a good person. Mm. Yeah, I don't have anything profound to add here. I just really love that we get to see so much more of Avonlea. Yeah. I love that we get to meet all these wacky neighbors, all their funny opinions. It really makes the story come alive to me. I think it's part of the pleasure of this book. Yeah. And we'll see going further into Maud's work. She herself loves this as well. Mm-hmm. She writes so often these kind of community 
moments in these kind of community stories. You can tell that she was never content to just write about one little girl's life, right? She built a whole world around it and she wanted she wanted her readers to know that whole world. So this dovetails actually really nicely with my Birch Path, where I'm going to put on my English teacher hat to discuss Anne of Avonlea as an example of regionalism. And fair warning, I am not an English teacher. <laughs> so, uh, Well, you're one up on me since I was not an, even an English major. So, so go I'm for more, it. I'm more go just dusting off, dusting off my notes from college here. So last season, we discussed the ways that romanticism, the literary and artistic movement of romanticism, influenced Ella Montgomery and Anne. But then in response to romanticism, writers and authors in the late 19th century began embracing realism, right? So now they wanted to start depicting people and places in a way that seemed more true to life and less dramatic. So we're moving away from Camelot into small mm-hmm. towns like Avonlea. Moving away from, right, Sir Walter Scott and the Knights of the Round Table and Goblin Market and sort of like fairy tales and, and Jane Eyre and Mad Women in the Attic and into small town and everyday life and the kind of things that Maud was working on. Anne of Avonlea specifically is a great example of a branch of realism called regionalism or local color fiction. Regionalism specifically focuses on characters, dialect, customs, geography, food, and other things that are specific to a particular region. Regionalism includes stories about common people living normal lives in small communities very much like Anne's. The stakes are smaller, but the people and places feel very real, with vivid depiction of the local settings and culture. In these types of books and stories, authors often used phonetic spelling to capture a particular accent or dialect. We saw that in the quote that I read earlier in the episode with Gertie Pye saying, don't you know, over and over again, right? Like you can hear her talking as you're reading. And another example of this is when Diana is so worried she might actually say, I seen to Mrs. Morgan, the famous author. Oh, you know, that's very interesting because when we were reading that Gertie Pye quote that brought to mind something I've noticed with Maud's writing is how she'll give many of particularly her side characters Mm -hmm. a little defining dialogue trait sure and that really defines it for instance mrs lind always ends her sentence with and that's what and that's what Mm-hmm. Yeah, Maud is really a master of bringing her characters to life through their dialogue. And that is such a strong feature of regionalism, making sure that you understand exactly who someone is and where they're from by the way they speak. Yeah. Okay. That is really interesting. That very much just encapsulates something that I had picked up on and noticed, but didn't realize that was a sort of a specific defining trait of the way that she was writing. Yeah. And and it was part of a larger trend, right? I I think that a lot of folks are familiar with like Mark Twain. He was doing that a lot at the same time period. That's a very famous example of of a regionalist. But I have to point out, in fairness, that most of the people who were characterized as regionalist writers or local color writers were women and people of color. White men and people who focused their work on powerful systems and people may have been writing in a very similar style, but their work was seen as realistic fiction, not regionalism. It's a distinction that, in my opinion, splits hairs a bit. Mm. Well, and speaks to how we decide what is literary and what is like fun. Exactly right. And so, for example, you have people like Thomas Hardy and William Faulkner, who I think are writing in a pretty similar manner in a lot of ways. They're reflecting local customs and language, but they are definitely considered the fathers of realism. 
Hmm. And then at the same time, we also have Edith Wharton and Henry James who are writing, again, they're writing realistic fiction about normal people living normal lives. But since the local culture they happened to be writing about was the seat of economic and political power, you know, high, high class New York society, they also are considered realists as opposed to regionalists. Hmm. Power. Yep. (laughs) Power and patriarchy, always coming back to that. And the thing to understand, too, is at the time, many of these regionalist writers were actually writing short stories for magazines, sometimes literary magazines, but oftentimes magazines aimed specifically at women. So again, when you have something that's being created by and for women, it has historically and even still now been devalued. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Mm hmm. So these stories sometimes functioned almost as travel narratives, like they would bring a distant place to city dwellers. So if you're living in a big city like Boston, but then you're reading about, you know, small town Prince Edward Island, it's almost like going on vacation and seeing it for yourself. Well, and it goes a little bit to the way that folks like to romanticize country life and rural life. Very much so. And think also, right, this is when the Industrial Revolution is in full swing. So if you're working at a factory all day, there's probably nothing sweeter than getting to sit down at the end of your day, put your feet up and read about like a beautiful little country village and the Mm. the little foibles of of the people who live there. And then, of course, submitting these kinds of stories to magazines was a way for women like Maud to make some money. And at this time, magazines often wanted these slice of life stories. Sure. They stood completely on their own, right? You could just read one and you didn't have to worry about what came next or serializing it in any particular way. They're just like you were talking about with that chapter of going, Anne and Diana going door to door and Mm -hmm. canvassing with the neighbors. They're fun. It's funny. The stakes are low. You could pick it up and read it in 15 minutes and then just move on. And what I think that you hit on there that's really interesting is a lot of regionalists were writing these sort of short stories that then they would compile together in a novel Mm. um, or in a collection that would sometimes like hold together thematically somewhat loosely, but was really just a series of vignettes, which many of the Anne novels, as we've discussed, do follow that story structure. Sure. And and Maude herself wrote a lot of those short stories and published her short story collections. Mm -hmm. And they often read very much like this. Right, right. Just these kind of like, you pick it up, you read it, you have a laugh, you are momentarily transported to this idyllic time and place, and then you can move on with your life. And, and so many of Maud's contemporaries were doing very similar work, telling these hyper-local stories about normal workaday people and their seemingly small struggles and triumphs. Sarah Orne Jewett, who wrote The Country of the Pointed Firs, set her stories in and around coastal Maine. And I have to say, this book reminds me of Anne of Avonlea in so many ways, and I recommend it really highly for people looking for an Anne of Avonlea read-alike. It's a novel, but it reads more like a series of vignettes. The story holds together on setting and theme rather than conflict and plot. It introduces you to a local village and the people and personalities who live there, all of whom have their lives sort of intertwined with each other and with the natural beauty of the place as well. The villagers are depicted as strong in their community bonds, and women are a focal point. So really similar to Anne of Avonlea. I don't find the country of the pointed firs quite as funny as the Anne books, but it does have its own like subtle, droll sense of humor. And I really think that Maud was a master of regionalism for Prince Edward Island, much as Sarah Orangewitt was for Coastal Maine. She's doing so much of the exact same work here, bringing a place to life through its people and its geography. When I think about how much we know about Avonlea from the book, whether it's birthday picnics or walks in the woods or canvassing the Tory Road, I could almost draw you a map in my head. 
And so much of the spirit of the village is alive through the people we all learn about. That's very consistent with regionalism, making outsiders and city people feel like they know a remote rural place and its people. Kate Chopin is another one of Maud's contemporaries who is writing regionalist fiction, and her short stories and novels were set in and around southern Louisiana. I think many people know her for her novel The Awakening, which was an absolutely astonishing shot across the bow for 20th century feminism, but she was also a prolific short story writer. Her short story collections are called Bayou Folk and A Night in Acadie. Her stories also capture that sort of middle and working class life on the bayou, complete with dialogue in dialect and descriptions of settings and food that make that part of the world come alive. And then Alice Dunbar Nelson is another regionalist I would love to introduce everyone to. She was an author, poet, journalist, and activist of a mixed-race background. Alice Dunbar Nelson, being a woman of color, was even further marginalized than writers like Maud or Kate Chopin or Sarah Orne Jewett, who were all white women. But she was doing a lot of the same work, bringing to life the vibrant Creole community in New Orleans at the turn of the century. Her short story collections, Violets and Other Tales, and The Goodness of St. Roque and Other Stories, even venture into some experimental writing that reminds me of early modernists like Virginia Woolf. I've been thinking a little about which authors are writing in this vein now, like books or short stories that are driven more by character, setting, and theme than by plot, and that make a small or more insular community or culture seem accessible and commonplace. And as our world gets more and more global, I think this is just harder to find. And maybe that's one reason we enjoy going back to these older stories. I think some of the great Southern authors of the mid-20th centuries, like Eudora Welty, Flannery O'Connor, and Carson McCullers, are all sort of writing in conversation with regionalists. The author Ann Tyler, who set all of her novels in and around Baltimore, also comes to mind for me. And so does Marilyn Robinson, whose fictional town of Gilead, Iowa, is practically a character in its own right in the Gilead Quartet. I'm also thinking about some memoirists, like Terry Tempest Williams, who writes gorgeously about Utah and the West, and Joan Didion, whose depictions of California in the 1960s and 1970s captured the whole energy of that generation. I am far from an expert on this subject, <laughs> so I would love to hear from our listeners about other regionalist authors, whether modern or from Maud's time. Keep the conversation going on our Instagram at kindredspirits.bookclub. Kelly, this was so fascinating. I did not know a lot about about regionalism or this movement. And I'm so glad I learned a little bit about it. It puts in perspective for me what Maud was doing, not just with Anne of Avonlea, but in so many of her books. And that makes sense to me the way that it is tied to other writers, other writers doing similar things. So I will definitely have to be on the lookout to read some of those other authors that you've mentioned and see what other contemporary regionalists might show up in my reading. Yeah, I have to say this was such an interesting thing for me to learn about in college. I think as part of my major, I had to take a 19th century American literature survey and I loved everything we read. I loved all the realism. I loved all the regionalism. I thought The Country of the Pointed Furs was like the most magical thing I'd ever read. It all hit home for me in such a profound way. And thinking about it now with some perspective and doing this podcast, I'm realizing it's because I fell in love with regionalism when I read Anne of Green Gables and the Anne books. Sure. So I already understood this world and I already understood this form of writing. And so then just getting introduced to so many other examples of it was just delightful. I love that. I love that. Well, let's take a turn here to talk about some puffed sleeve moments for us. That is some fun, frivolous moments that relate to what we've been talking about, but we didn't get to in our major discussion today. 
So for me, I love this little exchange that Anne has with Mr. Harrison, who has been complaining about Mrs. Lynde and who had been rather rude to her. He says, you must excuse me, Anne. I've got a habit of being very outspoken and folks mustn't mind it. Anne responds with, but they can't help minding it. And I don't think it's any help that it's your habit. What would you think of a person who went around sticking pins and needles into other people and saying, excuse me, you mustn't mind it. It's just a habit I've got. And I just—I ah, know, right? That's such a good analogy. It is. And I just love this because Anne gets very neatly to the bottom of the kind of people who are being rude or unkind, but excuse it as being outspoken or joking, Yep. which, right? It's not just Mr. Harrison. I'm sure you've encountered plenty of those people in real life. Everybody knows these people who are like, oh, I just make fun of everybody. Don't mind me. Right, exactly. I just say what I think. Don't take it personal. So I like that she doesn't let Mr. Harrison off the hook here and how you can see her moral and ethical development. Mm -hmm. I know she's really so brave. You have to remember in this book, she's only like 16, 17 years old. And she goes head to head with so many strong personalities in this book. Well, and I love that Mr. Harrison sort of gives her this opportunity to grow in by opposing him, right? He sort of forces her one way or the other to articulate her thoughts in a way that leads her to some very clear ethical and moral places. So Reagan, I'm not sure that I have a particular moment today, but I was thinking a little bit about our friend, Mr. Harrison and about gossip generally and all that like uproar and scandal it caused when it became known that he actually had a wife. Mr. Harrison. I know. (laughs) I mean, first of all, it's such a funny part of the book. I mean, here's this old grump, this apparent bachelor who wants nothing to do with the town or its folk. And so he tells them nothing, allowing them, of course, to make all kinds of errant assumptions about him. And then seemingly out of nowhere, a wife shows up and now he's the talk of the town. It just makes me think about how gossip is part of the core of a community. And I'm not condoning like malicious or hurtful gossip, but I am saying that there's value in the stories that we tell each other about ourselves and how those stories are shared. They confirm that certain experiences are universal and they affirm standards of behavior. So when someone like Mr. Harrison comes along, utterly refusing to take part in anything that could lead to community chatter, look what ends up happening. His His life becomes the scandal of the year. Mr. Harrison, it would have been better to just tell Mrs. Lind that you were married on day one and that you and your wife were on a break. (laughs) And now that you mention it, I think this is actually a really great observation. And gossip, of course, can be malicious and hurtful. But as we see from Mrs. Lind, who certainly traffics in all the gossip of the community, she is absolutely serving this vital role. She's sharing what's going on with everyone in a way that lets the community show up for their neighbors. Right. Avonlea definitely has a philosophy of you can complain about the members of your village, but you always show up for them when they need it, no matter what. Mm -hmm. So Mr. Harrison thinks he can opt out of this vital aspect of the community, but he can't avoid it forever. It's baked into the nature of a small town, I think. Yeah, I agree. And I I just can't help but think that Mr. Harrison would have saved himself a lot of bother if he had just been honest with the town gossips from the (laughs) get-go. They're going to find it all out eventually. Yep. (laughs) So I wanted to 
dig into some inspired by Anne ideas. I know that for me, I'm really inspired to participate in something hyper local. And I encourage our kindred spirits to do the same. Really sink into your local community in some way. Maybe your neighborhood has a farmer's market or your local library has a fun free event that you can join. I don't know, maybe you have bingo in the church basement, but find something fun that is going to put you in touch with your neighbors. I love that idea. I love our little farmer's market around the corner from us. It's pretty small, but there's often local bands and we always run into folks we know there. So we'll have to hit it up this weekend. So I am also inspired by the idea of community and I have a book to recommend that really explores that importance of building community, but from a very different angle. The book is Legends and Lattes by Travis Baldry. It's a cozy fantasy about an orc adventurer that's ready to hang up her sword and open a coffee shop instead. It's such a sweet premise, and the book really leans into this gradual evolution of the character and her place in the community, building individual relationships from a place of kindness and how that comes together to create something bigger than the sum of its parts. It's just such a lovely book. I adore that book, Regan, and I co-sign that recommendation. I think it's so fun to watch these kinds of characters that we associate with a lot of conflict, right? Yes. About like high fantasy characters like elves and orcs and dwarves and whatever, like you're thinking of them like fighting dragons or whatever, but here they're just running a coffee shop together and it's just the most charming, delightful little book. I know. I love it. And I love the way they lean into this building a found family, not based on strife and conflict, but building it out of this shared small goal and working together. Right. Yeah. So that's Legends and Lattes by Travis Baldry. Thank you for joining us this episode, Kindred Spirits. Don't forget to like, follow, and review us wherever you listen to podcasts so other Kindred Spirits can find us. And please follow us on Instagram at kindredspirits.bookclub or Twitter at KSBCpod. Drop us a line and tell us how you are part of your community. Join us next episode as we talk about Anne's ambition and career. Bye, Kindred Spirits.